pub theology doesn't make us unique. It doesn't welcome in a new way of church. Believe it or not, we Methodists have been insistent on bringing religion and politics in conversation with one another pretty much since our inception. We have this annoying habit of continually conversing about things like God and faith and church, and we're always talking about how God and faith and church impact how we move socially in the world. Those things become political awfully quick for us. Methodists believe that talking about religion, talking about God, talking about what God is doing in our life or not doing in our life, what God is saying in our life or not saying, we cling to that so dearly that we actually call it a means of grace. This means of grace we call holy conferencing. It's foundational to who we are as Methodists, actually. I don't know if you know this, um, but here's a bit of insider Methodist polity for you. Every year, the whole lot of Methodist clergy and about a thousand lay representatives like you folks <laughs> gather at the Campton Coliseum or at the Roanoke Convention Center for this thing called holy conferencing. And you know what we do there? We have pub theology, except without the pub or the beer. Believe me, if we had beer, we'd get much more accomplished, I think. <laughs> we gather and we hold tough topics like the one we'll confront today. We hold that in tension with the history of our denomination and with scripture. We talk all the time about religion. We talk about politics. Early on in our faith, we came up with this notion that there are three rules to living out our faith as Methodists. Really only three things that Methodists do. Anybody know what these are? No. <laughs> so number one is do no harm. Number two is do good. And number three is stay in love with God or pay attention to the ordinances of God. Basically, pay attention to how God is moving in your life. These are the three rules. This is what it means to be a Methodist. And that all sounds well and good until it starts getting social. Early on, that stuff starts getting political. Read our book of discipline. That book outlines what we believe and how we are governed and you'll find out that it wasn't good enough for us to just throw out these rules and say, now you go and you find out what that means for yourself. We made those things political. First, do no harm. The early Methodists said, we will not engage in slave trading, slave ownership. We will not buy and sell goods that have ever been touched by the hands of slaves. Do no harm. Second, we will... Do good by clothing the naked and feeding the hungry and visiting the sick and the prisoners. That quickly gets political. Methodists, since our inception, have been people who have been in conversation about how our faith affects social issues. It's in that spirit, in that history, in that heritage that we move into this next sermon series for the next four weeks, we're entering into a sermon series talking about our faith and how it intersects with highly charged political and social issues. Last 
late last year. It was, yeah, late last year I was flipping through our Methodist Book of Resolutions, um, which is a book about this thick that is published every year and sent to my house sometime in March. And it says, here's what's happening. Here's what's happening in the world and how we as people of faith called Methodists think about these things. And so I'm flipping through it, um, flipping through last year's and thinking, goodness, do my folks even, even know that this exists? Do they know the rich heritage and conversations happening alongside this book? And I remembered that we do a pretty good job of living and breathing these conversations in our church through pub theology, and I noticed that the most requested topics at pub theology seem to be the ones that our book of resolutions and disciplines invite us into. Um, They seem to be the most complicated conversations this little book right here has to talk about. And yet there's something about doing this in the context of a worship service that takes these from being just courageous conversations into holy conversations. There are many tough, holy conversations that we could choose to have, but just based on our pub theology request sheets from 2016, you came up with four. And the first one is war and peace. A few things before we dive into these conversations. Um, Number one, (laughs) Methodists agree on almost nothing. If you've got two Methodists in a room, you've got three opinions. Did you know that? (laughs) There is not one issue when it comes to social issues from abortion to Zimbabwe orphans that Methodists agree on. Not a single one. We are not, though, in communion with one another because we believe the exact same things. Because we vote the same party. Because we have the same ideas on what it means to live as people of faith. If you are looking for monolithic community, you're going to struggle in this world. Methodists are together because we believe God has called us into communion with each other. Period. And so we're resolved to be in communion with each other no matter what you think, no matter what you think I think. This is a test of our faith. Can we be in communion together, even though we disagree? Which leads me to number two. Can we be in conversation together. Methodists are people who don't just exist on separate sides of the spectrum, but decide to have tough conversations with one another. Worship is not the place where we smile and nod and resolve to never talk about politics and religion together. That would be too easy. At worship, we commit ourselves to conversations that are tearing the world apart knowing full well that we will not be torn. That's what the church has to offer. So here are your questions before we begin. Are you resolved to be in communion with one another no matter what? Are you? 
And are you resolved to being in open conversation together about how God moves in the world? All right. Okay. If we are resolved to these two things, then we will keep talking and keep communing and pressing forward together until kingdom comes. That's a long preface to this sermon series, so I'm not going to do this every week, just so you know. But the first topic, one of the top four that you all said you'd like to hear, how we think about these things as people of faith, as Methodists, is peace and war. This time three years ago, our country was at war for the 13th consecutive year engaged in military operations in Afghanistan and Iraq. Whatever Congress called it, whatever the current president says is happening or was happening there, we were engaged for 13 years. That means that means that prepubescent boys and girls wrapping up more than half of their K-12 education did not know America not at war. To be an American for them was to be at war. What do we think about that? How do we as people of faith, as followers of Jesus, talk to that generation about this? As we move into this discussion, I want us to keep our gospel lesson in mind today. Jesus, on the eve of his crucifixion, arguably the most unjust thing to ever happen in the history of the world, the Son of God, the Innocent One, is about to be killed And in that garden, Jesus gives a sermon and performs a sacrament. In that garden, Jesus tells Peter to put away his sword. Later, he tells Pilate that if his disciples were of this earth, they would fight. But his kingdom is not of this earth. So his disciples don't fight, no matter how large the injustice. In that exchange, Peter before he is rebuked, pulls out his sword and strikes off the ear of the centurions of the centurion. And in that moment, Jesus reaches out and touches the one wounded and heals him. My kingdom is not of this world sermon. Healing the one wounded by violence sacrament. Remember this story as we walk through this issue. Remember this sermon. My kingdom is not of this world. Remember that sacrament, healing the one who is wounded by war. Remember this as we dive into this issue today. The church has approached peace and war in two camps, traditionally. Of course, there are always hues of gray in the middle, but since we don't have until 4 o'clock today, we'll tidy it up and make it much more polemic. The first camp, when we talk about peace and war and patriotism and all of that stuff, the first camp says that America was founded by Christians on Christian principles, that the founding fathers and mothers were devout Christians who were thoughtful about their faith and who set up, who archetyped this country based on Christian principles. And so in that paradigm, in that way of thinking, God and country go 
as easily together as hand and glove. The flag and the cross are often prominent in those sanctuaries. On the Sundays closest to the 4th of July, Memorial Day, Veterans Day, churches like this abide by this ethic um, by having service. Men and women stand and thank them and they applaud them for their service. Have you ever been to a church like this? Yeah. So within these churches, it's not it's not uncommon at all to sing God Bless America or My Country Tis of Thee because patriotism and faith just sort of coexist seamlessly together. After a while, it seems like Jesus and George Washington were roommates in college, and it all just sort of comes together nicely. Most charitably, these churches have deeply paid attention to Jesus' sacramental act in the garden. They recognize the sacrifice of soldiers, the military, their family. They recognize the cost of that service, and they want to offer a space to thank them, to reach out and to heal them. And they excel at the sacrament of healing the wounded soldier. But they completely forget the sermon My kingdom is not of this world. That's why my disciples don't fight. When Jesus tells Peter to lay down his sword, that is a command to all the church throughout all time. Lay down your sword, Peter. My kingdom is not of this world. This is why in the United Methodist Book of Discipline it says war is incompatible with the teachings and model of Jesus. Those who would follow Jesus into his kingdom would have to pledge allegiance to something other than the flag. Those who follow Jesus would pledge allegiance to the cross and the empty tomb instead of the flag. Those who follow Jesus will will believe that justice comes through resurrection, not through violent response. Even if it costs us our life even if it costs the lives of those we dearly love. My kingdom is not of this world, Jesus says. That's why my disciples will lay down their swords. The other camp, historically speaking, have heard the sermon. They've ingested it, they believe it, and they almost move violently against violence. They will picket and protest, and with righteous indignation, they will almost chastise anyone who's ever worn a uniform or ever flown a flag. They hear Jesus' sermon to lay down your swords, and they make violence the unforgivable sin There is no room for centurions in that congregation. Those churches hear the sermon from Jesus, but they forget the sacrament, where Jesus reaches out to the centurion and doesn't make him lay down his sword, doesn't make him take off his uniform. He sees past all of that, and he heals the one who has been broken by war. 
This is Methodist theology at its best, calling ourselves and others to lay down our swords and reaching out to heal those who have been broken by violence. We are always at our best when we are word and table, sermon and sacrament. Lay down your swords, heal the broken. And I've seen it happen, y'all. About three years ago, while I was living in Durham, I saw an article in the local paper written by a vet who had retired from the military. He was an army ranger. He taught special forces. He taught at West Point for a while. And in this gripping, almost uncomfortable article, the kind of article that will just make you squirm in your seats as you read it, he spoke of the struggles of being a vet around the 4th of July. He said, you know, I get plenty of esteem. Lots of people come up to thank me for my service and they applaud me for it. And then he said, But as someone says, thank you for your service, I usually smile and say, you're welcome. But inside I'm thinking, is that thank you for killing someone's father or burning down their village? And then he wrote this sentence. I don't need more esteem. I need forgiveness. The next Easter, I got to participate in that man's baptism. He wandered into our little church uh, that also happened to meet in elementary school (laughs) and decided that the best place to begin his healing is in a place where we call that kind of healing a sacrament. In that church, he found a way to become a part of a kingdom, not of this world. As we tackle these tough topics of faith and life, I've I've wanted you to also hear other voices that are not me. And so uh, my pastor in this category is a man by the name of Shane Claiborne, and I wanted you to hear a little bit about what he has to say about this. So I was coming home on an airplane this morning, walking through the airport, and saw the new Time magazine. And the cover story is one a day. Every day, one U.S. soldier commits suicide. And for a while, we've been saying that the suicide rate is higher than the combat death rate. But the fact is that right now, the suicide rate of U.S. soldiers and veterans is the highest it's been in like over 10 years. I started thinking about that and thinking that uh, of the pile of letters that I've got on my desk from U.S. soldiers, many of them in active combat right now, that write me in over and over. They're saying things like, I'm trying to love my enemy, and I'm not sure that I can kill them. Uh, One of the Christian soldiers wrote me and said, I'm not sure that my arms are big enough to carry a cross and a sword or a gun. One of the letters I'll never forget is from from a soldier that said, I feel like I'm dying and killing for abstract nouns, like freedom and democracy. And then he said, but it just doesn't feel like love. It doesn't feel like Jesus. 
as, as we look at Jesus, we see what love looks like as it stares evil in the face. And it's beautifully, redemptively nonviolent. It says to those who hate us, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. And as I, I, I think of that, I, I went to Iraq. Uh, I've been to Iraq a couple of times. And, and when I first went to Iraq, I was convinced that the collateral damage of war were kids and families in Iraq, but I've, I've also become really, really convinced that folks are dying on both sides of those guns and that, that folks are committing suicide and having deep moral injury from what they've seen and done. I was uh, speaking at a school recently, and one of the kids at Beeline to the front after I'd spoke about peacemaking and nonviolence with this kid he's you know visibly shaken and he comes up and he says I was on active duty during the shock and awe campaign when you were in Baghdad I dropped the bombs on Baghdad and he said I've been living with that ever since and I could just feel the weight on him and as I wrapped my arms around him and we prayed that his heart would be set free of the the weight of what he had done and seen and that we would all like have the imagination to live into a different world into a different dream than the patterns of violence that we see right now jesus said at one point if you pick up the sword you die by the sword we've we've lived that over and over we've we've picked up the sword and we've died by the sword it's time to discover a new way of doing things. I, I think, you know, as, as people, there's all these political camps, all this political rhetoric, um, but, but in the end, um, uh, we, we continue to spend $20,000 a minute on militarism and war. One soldier or veteran commits suicide every single day and you start to go, there's, there's got to be another way. There's got to be a more sensible way of, of doing things. And, and as I look at Jesus, we see a third way that doesn't make sense to the wisdom of smart bombs, but it's, the, it's a different, deeper wisdom that the scriptures say is foolishness to the wisdom of this world. And we've seen the wisdom of this world. We've seen this myth that, that this we can bring peace through the sword and, and Jesus says no you pick up the sword you die by the sword we've tried that one enough let's try something different let's try loving those who hate us let's try laying down our lives for someone rather than taking someone's life maybe that's the other way